says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. And Father, we do just humbly ask that as we continue now in our worship, that you would give us the grace and help of your spirit to understand what it is you would have us to hear from your heart from this portion of the word of God this morning. We ask, Lord, prepare us accordingly, and now that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking to us from the word of God this day, and we ask this together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, how important is it to you to be right with God on a personal level? Where does that rank in your priorities or your level of importance that you yourself would be right with God? Secondarily, how important is it to you that others would be in right relationship with God themselves? Well, it seems to Paul, as we look at his words in this text here, that this was of extreme value to him. It was of highest importance that he himself not only be right with God, but that others be right with God as well. Remember the backdrop, Paul and Barnabas had been ministering and kind of leading, you might say, in the church of Antioch, where Peter and James and John seemed to be providing leadership and oversight there in the church of Jerusalem. And we saw in our passages last time that the Lord had directed Paul by a revelation of the Spirit to go up to the church of Jerusalem and to spend some time with the leaders there to discuss a few things. And during that meeting, some really good things resulted for the kingdom of God. Paul, it seems, was encouraged and felt a sense of confirmation that he was on the right track doctrinally and in his ministry preaching the gospel of grace for salvation through Jesus Christ. We also saw in that section as well that as a result of that time together, a wonderful partnership was established between Peter and between Paul. We're told that as they spent time together, they realized that they were all preaching the same gospel of grace, of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. They were doing it in different areas and they were ministering among different churches, but they were all preaching the exact same gospel and they recognized that God had called each of them and was using both of them just in different ways and in different areas. 
that predominantly a measure of grace had been given to Peter to, in a sense, be the pioneer who would predominantly bring the gospel of salvation to the Jewish people. And God had uniquely gifted Peter to minister to the Jewish people, to lead them to Christ, and, and that was primarily his calling. Paul was really more of the apostle who was called to the Gentile nations, to the Gentile people, to lead them to Christ and to plant churches among the Gentile people. It says at the end of where we looked at last time in verse 9, if you look back, it says, When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be the pillars, that is the leaders, upholding things, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and that they should go to the circumcised or to the Jewish people. So the idea is, Paul says at the end of this meeting, the leaders there, they recognized that we both had different callings and they extended the right hand of fellowship. The idea there, the word fellowship was partnership. The idea is they confirmed the calling that was upon Paul and Barnabas's life. They recognized the ministry that God was doing through their lives. And in a sense, as an act of partnership, they said, look, you continue to do what God's called you to do. We'll continue to do what God has called us to do. And may the Lord continue to bless our works. And I'm sure that as Paul was then probably departing from the church in Jerusalem, traveling a long distance back to the church at Antioch, where he and Barnabas were leading, I'm sure Paul expressed some type of sentiment to Peter, something along the lines of, Peter, look, whenever you're able and you can make it, come visit us at the church in Antioch. Peter, come up and see what God is doing at the church of Antioch. Spend some time with us and fellowship and see what God's doing amongst us. Well, this section we're now going to look at this morning describes one of those visitations, apparently, when Peter himself went to the church of Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were providing leadership. Look at me back in verse 11. It tells us there, now when Peter had come, it says, to Antioch, that is the church of Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed for before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he then withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision and the rest, it says, verse 13, the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy so notice paul refers to a situation that arose during this visitation of peter to the church of antioch that actually became so difficult that paul actually had to confront peter for his wrong behavior because it was so unhealthy to those who were among the church there that it actually required a correction a confrontation if you would now what was it that Peter needed to be confronted about that was so wrong that needed to be corrected. Well, verse 13 very clearly says to us it was spiritual hypocrisy. I mean, verse 13 directly emphasizes that it was Peter was playing, it says, the hypocrite. And verse 13 says as well that he was then causing others to become guilty of this same hypocrisy. So what was the issue? It was hypocrisy. It was the sin of hypocrisy. And again, hypocrisy is pretending one thing is true outwardly when something else is really true inwardly. The Greek word that was used originally for the term hypocrisy literally went, 
meant to wear the mask. It was in the days of when they would act upon stages and they would use a mask with a handle and they would hold it up in front of themselves to hide their identity so that you didn't see who it truly was. And then they would play the part of somebody that they really weren't. That's where the hypocrites or hypocrisy, the term comes from. It's a word that means to be a play actor, to hide who you really are underneath and to play the part outwardly to deceive others who are around you and to just play a different part than what you really are. That, that's what hypocrisy is. It's, it's often claiming one thing outwardly, but then not doing those things in our actions. It's saying certain things verbally, but then not putting into practice the very things that we're saying. Hypocrisy also refers to sometimes just having a double standard. Where, let's say, for example, we kind of change the rules of what's right or wrong for the given situation. So in this situation, these rules apply. But if the situation changes, I'm going to change the rules to make it work. And, and it's an altering of what's right or wrong depending upon maybe the situation or who's around. Well, how was Peter being guilty of hypocrisy specifically? Well, verse 12 tells us. Look, he says this is what his hypocrisy was. Before certain men came from James, that is referencing the church in Jerusalem, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So what was Peter doing? He was fluctuating in his behavior just to please a certain group and have their approval. He was becoming, in essence, very unloving to his fellow spiritual family members because he really was wanting the approval of certain individuals and he was causing some real confusion spiritually as well as, no doubt, some hurt in doing some very unloving things. At a church there in Antioch, which was predominantly Gentile, that is, again, non-Jewish people, that's what the word Gentile means, a church that was predominantly made up of Gentile people from other nations who had become Christians, for a time, while Peter was visiting, we're told there in verse 11, he came to visit, Peter was enjoying grace. And he was spending time with the Gentile people and not living under the demands of the Mosaic law through his understanding of a relationship of grace in Jesus Christ. It says right there in verse 12 that he would eat with the Gentiles. So he's having open meals together with the Gentile people. Peter was eating all the bacon he could at the men's breakfast. At the church potluck, he was enjoying ham and crab cakes and none of that was a problem. And he was spending time with the Gentile people and fellowshipping with them. And he was doing this because he understood they were no longer under the restrictions of a kosher diet according to the Mosaic law. He understood in Christ, we've been freed from those things. And, and though I'm a Jew and I know Christ now, I don't have to follow those restrictions any longer. He also was doing something very new in that he was eating, which is a very intimate thing in that culture, with the Gentile people. And you remember that prior to what Christ did to unify Jew and Gentile as one in the church, Jews and Gentiles not only didn't interact, but they certainly never shared meals together. That was considered a very inappropriate thing because eating together, as again, they, they just broke pieces of bread off and they all dipped in the same sauces. And the idea is what you're dipping in and I'm, we're becoming one, the germs and the molecules. And so eating together was a very intimate act. So Jews and Gentiles would not eat together. And Peter here now, 
recognizing, look, there's no more Jew and Gentile. Yes, we may have an identity, but in Christ, we're one now. We're brothers. We're sisters. It doesn't matter what our ethnicity is or our nationality is or what our race is. In Christ, we're a family. We're brothers and sisters. And God may have given to us you know, physical identities which have their purpose and are wonderful, but in Christ, there's no separation. There's no segregation or discrimination. And so here Peter is enjoying this because Jesus broke down that wall of separation. And remember, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter had already gone through this whole process himself. When he brought the gospel originally, remember, he was the first one to bring the gospel to Cornelius and see the first few Gentiles get saved. And when he came back, they gave Peter a hard time for eating with the Gentiles. And Peter was like, look, God doesn't show partiality. He's saving these Gentile people and we need to accept them. So Peter already knows these things are true. That's why you see him eating with the Gentiles here. Remember, Jesus himself said, it's not what goes into the body, food or drink, that is then eliminated, that defiles a man. It's what comes out of a man's heart that causes a man to be either right with God or not right with God, the condition of the heart. So here's Peter. He's enjoying grace in the initial part of this visit, spending time with his Gentile brothers and sisters, eating their same foods. But then, notice verse 12, but then it says, when certain men came from Jerusalem, from James, the church there at Jerusalem, and he references them as those of the circumcision. So this implies a couple things. These men are from the area of Judea or Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of Judaism. The temple was there, and that was the epicenter of Jewish life. As well as the fact he calls them of the circumcision, which could be a reference to the fact of those who were referred to as Judaizers, as we've talked about already before. Those who were a sect of individuals who were trying to Judaize even Christians and bring them back under obligation to the Mosaic law and saying, listen, it's okay if you want to follow this man, Jesus, but you also must maintain your Judaism. In fact, you even have to become Jewish before you can even become Christian. And, and it's probably a reference to these type of individuals. Certain men, he says, came and they were trying to pressure people to follow the ways of the Mosaic law. And verse 12 tells us very clearly that what happened is it says that when these men came, as Peter was eating with the Gentiles, it says Peter withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So being, in a sense, undone by kind of the peer pressure of these individuals wanting their acceptance, it tells us that what Peter did is he withdrew from the Gentiles. He was no longer having meals with them. And he actually says separated himself from them. So the idea is, is kind of like, and maybe you've experienced this before. Let's go back to school days or for those of you who are younger and still in school, right? Somebody's hanging out with you. They're eating lunch with you. But then somebody from the cool crowd comes over and all of a sudden now they can't eat lunch with you because they want to win the approval of someone else. So they're your friend unless this person knows they're your friend. And this is kind of what Peter's doing when they came Peter pulls back, he withdraws, and he separates himself, and now he won't eat with them, he won't fellowship with them, and he's trying to give the impression to these other people that he's still living a separated life, that there still is this wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles as he kind of dismisses them and pulls away from them. Now, Peter knew what was right in his heart, 
But though he knew what was right in his heart, he knew his conviction, he didn't have the courage under peer pressure to walk it out. Peter knew what was right in his heart. The problem was he let peer pressure influence his behavior. And because he was worried about what people thought about him, it led to him changing his behavior. Boy, I think to some degree, we have all made that mistake at times where Peter knew what was right and he knew what would be wrong before God, but he didn't carry it out because he was concerned about what people would think about him. We've all been there before to some degree where we know what's right, but then we don't do what's right because of our fear or concern of what somebody might think about us at our job or what a family member might say about us or what you know, may make us seem more cool or acceptable to others. You know, the Bible tells us the fear of man is a snare. A fear of man is a snare. One of the biggest things that will trip you and I up in our spiritual lives often more than anything is just being afraid of what people are going to think about us. Listen, people are going to think stuff about you anyway. <laughs> just do what's right before God and the right people will think the right things about you. And those who are going to judge you wrongly for having healthy and good and right convictions. Uh, so what if they at times, you know, criticize or don't agree? You're going to get made fun of for all kinds of things your whole life long. And look, we, a lot of times we think peer pressure is just a thing for junior high students or high school students or college students. <laughs> it goes all the way into people 60s and 70s and 80s. We all struggle with it. And here, Peter, sadly, he's, again, godly man. And yet, I think we can relate. We've all made these kind of mistakes. But Peter was seriously guilty of hypocrisy and holding a double standard. He's pretending as these individuals come. Again, at first, he's enjoying grace, but then he transforms himself to kind of blend into the situation. And he's pretending something is true, that he doesn't eat with Gentiles, and he withdraws, and he... And that's not what was really true about Peter on the inside. He's just putting on an act in this given situation, sadly, to maintain the approval of others. Again, but in seeking the approval of man, what does Peter do? He disapproves, in a sense, himself before God. In seeking the acceptance of people, he was disregarding what was right before God. Look, the Bible is clear. When you study through it, God really dislikes hypocrisy. I mean, there are a number of things the Bible makes very evident that God does not like. And one of them, it's real obvious, is hypocrisy. God does not like pretending. God does not like insincerity. Again, the Bible speaks of even those who honor God with their lips and then their heart is far from them. You know, God even goes so far as to say, these people worship me in vain. What? That, what? worship god in vain yeah god says look you can sit, go you could sing a song and do outward things spiritually but your heart is somewhere completely else so god cares about what's going on and god deeply cares about sincerity before him why because god knows what's going on inside of my heart god sees my mind you know psalm 139 blows my mind because it says before a word is on my tongue god already knows about it before you know my thoughts come it says he perceived my thoughts from afar that means that god doesn't just know your thoughts it says he perceives my thoughts from afar that is before they come so god knows your thoughts in the pre-thunk stage right so when something's happened you're having an argument with your husband and wife here's application for the marriage conference again and you're having and, and god is watching he's going oh no i i know what she's gonna think i know what he's gonna no i know what he's gonna say 
That's how well God knows us. And isn't it crazy we try and pretend sometimes? We try and pretend? You know, remember, Jesus' strongest words, his strongest words of condemnation in the Gospels was against hypocrisy. Very strong Jesus was about hypocrisy because hypocrisy is not just sinful. It's actually damaging on multiple levels. Consider again what Peter's doing here. Peter's playing the hypocrite, and it says, verse 12, he withdraws and separates himself from the Gentiles after he was eating with them as a brother and sister. Can you consider how hurtful that was to to the Gentile brothers and sisters in the Lord? Here he's spending time with them, eating meals with them, and then a few people come who he feels peer pressured by, and all of a sudden he cuts them off, and he doesn't spend time with them anymore. Can you imagine how hurtful that was as they got spurned? And they're thinking, I don't understand. I mean, wait a minute. Why would you? And and he's hurting people by his hypocrisy. And hypocrisy hurts people. It ends up wounding other people. Not only that, but Peter's hypocrisy was causing confusion spiritually. Can you imagine as Peter pulls back? And again, he's a leader. He's the apostle Peter, this very well-respected godly man. And he starts behaving in this hypocritical way. And now all the Gentile Christians and the people of Antioch are going, wait a minute. We're confused. I thought grace set us free from having to obey the demands of the law of God in Moses' day. Wait a minute. I thought Jew and Gentile were one in Christ. I thought our nationalities and ethnicities didn't matter. Now all of a sudden he's spurning us and discriminating against us. I'm confused. And imagine the confusion that he was causing. And so this was hurtful and confusing. And notice the negative influence As a spiritual leader on top of it, verse 13, Paul says, and the rest of the Jews who were also there, who are part of the church, they also played the hypocrite with Peter. So they started following Peter's negative example. And then he goes so far to say, verse 13, so that even Barnabas, (laughs) the other leader in the church in Antioch, together with Paul, even Barnabas, it says, became carried away with their hypocrisy so they were following peter's wrong example in his hypocrisy that was how damaging the hypocrisy was that as a leader he was causing a horrible influence to others who were around him look it is bad enough when a person allows themselves to be a hypocrite and people kind of notice that i mean that's bad enough but when someone who is a leader becomes guilty of hypocrisy, that's really damaging. When a church leader begins to function in a hypocritical way or becomes exposed that they're living a hypocritical life or a double standard, and when the hypocrisy of a spiritual leader comes forth or someone who, again, says these things or proclaims these things, but yet they're treating people completely differently and and they're living a double standard. And listen, I understand none of us are batting the thousand or a hundred or whatever the best batting average is i don't follow baseball you understand what i mean but the point is when there's evident hypocrisy in a church leader that's destructive because what it does is it encourages others to say oh well apparently that's okay and they're a leader and they do that so in a sense they encourage others to behave in wrong ways as well Look, same applies for those of us who are parents, folks. When there's hypocrisy among parents and children see that, 
Do you know how many times, sadly, I've talked to children who have struggled and stumbled in their spiritual lives because of the hypocrisy spiritually they've identified in their parents' lives and the double standards they saw and things would be said by parents but then not practiced in the home life? And the parents would profess one thing, but then different things would be going on. The children observe that. And much more is caught than is taught. And they would observe that. That's damaging. We need to be very careful. For those of us who have children, we don't want to be hypocrites in front of our kids. Genuine and real, yes. But when you fail, own your failure and acknowledge your failure. And be very careful that you don't let yourself start to live a double standard in front of your children. It will drastically impact and stumble them and sadly give them justification to follow your patterns of hypocritical behavior and to begin to adopt those same things. So look, spiritual hypocrisy is so dangerous and destructive both to us and others. Though Peter was a godly man and a well-respected leader, imagine, this is the apostle Peter. Though a very well-respected godly leader, Paul strongly confronted him for his error regarding what he was doing. That's what he was saying in verse 11. Look back up at it. He says, when Peter came and he was doing these things, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. So Paul strongly confronted him. And notice, this wasn't just a questionable issue. This wasn't just a difference of opinion. It wasn't just, well, Peter has one conviction about something and I have another conviction about something. That's not what this was. This was a blatant offense that he was guilty of sinful behavior. That's why verse 11 says he was to be blamed. That is blamed for something sinful that was harming and and misguiding other people. And Paul took a stand against his wrong and sinful behavior and (laughs) rebuked him for it. Paul says in verse 11 there, I withstood him face to face. You notice how Paul dealt with the issue? He, He had a direct personal conversation with him over an issue that needed to be resolved. He called Peter on the carpet, if you would. And he identified what Peter was doing wrong. He addressed it and he explained why it was wrong and how it needed to stop in his life. And you know, folks, sometimes that is a necessary part of spiritual family life. Sometimes as the the, the love of God is operating among us, as we're seeking to keep one another accountable and protect one another from bad habits and sinful behavior. And again, sometimes that's a necessary part. There are times where... It is a healthy and proper thing to rebuke another brother in Christ or rebuke a sister in the Lord and to confront or withstand something that they're doing that is evidently wrong, especially if it's directly contrary to Scripture in some way, that we would bring that to their attention. And we can be on either side of this. Sometimes we may be on the receiving end where someone's identifying something in our life that needs to be corrected or repented of, and we need to be humble and receptive if there's genuinely a sin to be repented of. And at times God may want to use us like Paul to love somebody enough that even if they're someone who in a sense is a wonderful or godly individual, that if they genuinely need to be rebuked for some area of sin or wrongdoing, that we wouldn't show partiality and we would address them no matter who they are out of love for them and concern. Well, as the hypocrisy spread, Paul describes then how the opposition uh, or the, excuse me, the, I guess the correction you might say to what he was doing that was opposed to the ways of God, how it had to be addressed. Look what he says in verse 14. When I saw, he says, that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, 
Why do you compel or force Gentiles to live as Jews? So notice, again, verse 14, what was the major issue? And this was why this was critical to be dealt with. Because Paul says in verse 14, they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That word straightforward, orthopedeo, the idea is, is they were walking in a crooked way. They were stumbling and misstepping regarding the truth of the gospel. That salvation is by grace alone, not observing Mosaic regulations or the laws or restrictions or the old covenant. That it is through Christ alone and his finished work. And he says, again, they were distorting what was true doctrinally and it was going to cause confusion in the church. It was going to stumble people spiritually. So that's why Paul says, I had to withstand Peter face to face. But look what verse 14 gives us insight to. He says, not only did he withstand him to his face in verse 11, but verse 14, he says, I said to Peter, as he confronted him, before them all. I have that underlined. In other words, Paul actually did this publicly. Because the situation was to the extent of, it, of its danger, he says, I actually had to publicly correct him as a leader. Again, when you read First, uh, First Timothy chapter 5, it says there that leaders, elders, those who are spiritual leaders, if they're genuinely in some area of clear, blatant sin at times, are to re be rebuked in the presence of all. Because their leadership, in a sense, has such a gravity and a weight of the influence upon others that if they need to be corrected, sometimes, hard as it is, we're not to show partiality. That may need to be done at times. And so here he says, before them all, I, I challenged Peter. And I said, Peter, what you're doing is wrong. It, it's, not, it's not appropriate. And he corrects him openly because it was necessary. And I'm not saying every situation requires that we publicly, openly correct people. Love covers a multitude of sins. But there are times when this kind of thing is necessary. And here's a given example in the church when it actually had to happen. Well, look what Peter, in a sense, or Paul, excuse me, was correcting Peter about. That's what the remaining verses kind of address almost an explanation of the correction. He said to him, first of all, verse 14, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why are you compelling Gentiles to live as Jews? In other words, Paul is saying, look, Peter, if as a Jew, you have been conducting yourself in a way that is living and eating just like the Gentile Christians why are you now trying to change the rules because this new group came and force everybody to go back to an old pattern to live like a Jew? In essence, he's saying, why are you expecting something from others that you're not really doing yourself? That's a double standard. That's not fair, and that's hypocrisy. And then he explains his reasoning to reaffirm a vital spiritual doctrine, as we'll see. He goes on, verse 15, to say, we who are Jews by nature, by nationality, he says, and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now, when he uses that term there, sinners of the Gentiles, in contrast to Jews by nature, the picture there is, is the idea is those who break law, those who are not law keepers. When he says the word sinners there, he's not trying to insult the Gentiles. He's saying those who don't keep the law, like the Jewish people who kept the law. He's referring to the Gentile people who didn't follow the law. And he says, as those who did not follow the law, one group, we as those who did follow the law, he says, verse 16, we know, even as those who did follow the law, that the law doesn't save people. 
That's what he goes on to say in verse 16. Knowing that a man, he says, is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So notice, Paul here is describing a vital New Testament truth, a vital New Testament doctrine, which is the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. This is a crucial understanding for the Christian. In fact, he repeatedly uses terms in verse 16, just one verse. He keeps emphasizing and even saying the same thing in multiple different ways, just to make sure they get the point. Now, that really excited me again as I thought about this week, because one of the things my family always gives me a hard time about, because I say it's thoroughness, they say it's repetition, is they say, you just said the same thing seven times. Dad, we got it the first time. Why did you have to say it seven different ways? Well, sometimes they say it's thoroughness. And Paul here, he basically says the same thing like three different ways because he's trying to make sure it can't be missed, to make sure the point is driven home. You notice three times in one verse, verse 16, he uses the term justified. And again, the word justified means to be declared righteous in the sight of God in a judicial sense. It's where God as a judge declares someone righteous and innocent. And it's not just being pardoned from error and set free from punishment that's, or that's deserved. It's more than that. It actually means to be fully exonerated, record expunged, and you actually inherit the righteousness of Jesus, as we'll talk about here in a moment. You get the righteousness of Christ instead so that you can then be treated the way Jesus deserves and not the way you actually deserve as someone who fails and make mistakes. So question, how in the world does that happen? That sounds like a good opportunity. How is that received or experienced? How does a person become right with God? That should probably be one of the most important questions that anybody on earth wants to answer. How do I become right with God? Well, look, the Bible is very clear. We are all guilty and sinful before God automatically. We're born sinful by nature. We prove it from about the first week that we're alive. We just begin to live out our sinful inclination. And our sin makes us become guilty before a holy and a righteous God. Each one of us, the Bible says, breaks God's holy law, whether it's something we think, something we say, something we do. We repeatedly fall short and make mistakes. And as a lawbreaker, we are guilty and deserve punishment. And the Bible says that punishment is separation from a holy and righteous God relationally, because God can't intermingle with sin, as well as the fact that we can be separated from God eternally and tormented in hell as our punishment for being sinners if that's not dealt with in our lives. But the good news is that how does a guilty sinner become right with God or righteous with God? Well, the first thing he says in verse 16, he says, we know that a man is not justified or made right with God. He's not justified by the works of the law. So again, it's not through keeping the regulations of the Mosaic law from the Old Testament. It's not by doing religious acts. It's not by living according to a set of standards and rules because they knew, even as Jews, they all routinely violated the law of God. 
It was a standard of God's righteousness and holiness, but the Bible teaches, Romans 3 directly spells it out for us in length, that by the law is simply the knowledge of sin. That is, the law reveals that I'm a lawbreaker, right? You wouldn't know that you're a lawbreaker when you drive home today, except the fact that there are speed limit signs on the road you drive home on. And as you drive home, you pass that speed limit sign and you realize as you look down at your odometer, I'm a lawbreaker because I just saw the law. I'm breaking the well, look, The law exposed that people were lawbreakers. God said, here's the standard. And as you looked at the standard, you I missed that. I fail. I missed this. I made a mistake there. The law exposes sin, but the law can't take away sin. Just like a thermometer. A thermometer reveals you have a fever, but the thermometer, if you chew it up, doesn't make your fever go away. See, this is what the law does. It reveals that we're sinful. And he's saying, look, by keeping the works of the law, you can't make yourself right with God. That's why he says we, we won't be justified by the works of the law. The end of verse 16, he says it clearly, he says, for by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified in God's sight or made right. They'd come to understand this, that good works that were demanded in the law were wonderful, but it was never adequate as an antidote to resolve the issue that they were sinful people. The Jewish people knew this. They recognized it. And Paul's bringing this to Peter's attention that human good works can't erase guilt in our hearts. And it's so important that all of us come to that understanding in our lives that you can be an extremely religious person and you can be very sincere and you can be going through all types of routines of church tradition and rituals and following the classes and sitting and standing and reading so much a week. And, and you can go through all types of the rituals of what are decent and good things and religious activities, but those things still don't erase the issue of sin and guilt in our lives, the Bible says. God's standard of holiness is too high. None of us can attain to that. And it is a dangerous and deceptive thing to try and offer to God your righteousness as a way of being acceptable to go to heaven. That is a very, very dangerous and misguided mindset. But listen, for some of us and for many in the world, that was the misguided mindset that people live with and many still live with. That they think, well, listen, I'm religious. I do this. I believe some good. And in a sense, they're saying my standard of righteousness is good enough to make me right before God. And the Bible is saying, God's word is saying, that contradicts what God says. It contradicts what God says. One translation renders this passage, people won't receive God's approval because of their own efforts to live according to a set of standards people won't receive god's approval by their own efforts to live according to a set of standards that has to be understood and once that's understood the question becomes then then what's the answer well god made the answer evident and has made a way for us to be right with him through what jesus did because in the same verse in verse 16 three times again it's stated for emphasis how we can be right with god and the thing he repeats three times in verse 16 is we're justified by faith, that is belief or trust, in Jesus Christ. That is through our dependency upon what Jesus did for us as the perfect man. 
Again, God saw that we could not fulfill the perfect requirements of the standards of righteousness and holiness. So God resolved the problem by sending his son Jesus to earth. Jesus being born miraculously by the womb of a virgin woman. God put the life of his son into a woman so that he could be born fully God and fully human at the same time. So that he could be in touch with divinity and humanity. And then Jesus, as a man, lived out the perfect righteous life I can't live, and you'll never live. And he fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law, and he satisfied what was necessary of perfection to meet God's standard. And then if that weren't enough, he then still took the punishment for all of us as lawbreakers. In a sense, he said, look, lawbreakers still need to be punished. Sin must be judged. I'll take their judgment. And so Jesus dies on the cross because the wages of sin is death. So someone had to die to pay for all of our sin. And so Jesus dies and suffers our punishment as he dies on the cross and then raises from the dead the third day to overcome death and hell and the power of sin so that now God has a just way of accepting what Jesus did on our behalf. And so God has a just basis to be able to forgive our sin and to make us righteous and holy according to what Jesus did for us. Again, this is what Romans 3 speaks to us about. It says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, listen, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference for all of sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So again, this term justification or justified, it is basically the act, listen, it's the act where a righteous, holy God, as the judge of mankind, declares guilty sinners to be righteous in his sight and acceptable because of his satisfaction with the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's all ours by receiving it freely and believing that for ourselves. By believing what God says is true of how to be right with him and become right with him. When you trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior and you believed upon him for what he did for you on the cross and his death and then his resurrection. When you did that, when you put your trust in Christ in that moment, God not only eradicated all your guilt, and took away all your sin and everything that you had done wrong in your entire life and will do wrong your entire life, your sins you haven't even committed yet, beyond that, he also deposited into your bank account all the righteousness of Jesus. So that when God interacts with you, he sees you absorbed in the life of his righteous son, Jesus Christ, united with Jesus, and so he relates to you with the same love and favor and grace and kindness as he would his own dear son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't see you in the practice of your mistakes and shortcomings still. Do we still fail periodically, even as Christians? Absolutely. Is my practice always perfectly righteous? Of course not. But my position, your position, is that you are righteous in God's sight through what Jesus did. Boy, that is wonderful news to know that when your practice doesn't line up, God doesn't deal with you according to your practice. He deals with you according to your position 
that you're justified and righteous in Christ. He takes away your unrighteousness and gives you the righteousness of God instead. He says he does this that we might be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. God wants it to be a gift, a free gift that anyone can receive because we're all in the same need of being made acceptable. You can't make yourself acceptable to God. We have to be made acceptable as God gives you his righteousness when you receive it as a free gift. Well, Paul continues to show the error of doing anything opposite of that. That's why he says, verse 17, if while we seek then to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. The idea there is those who don't adhere to the law. If we're trying to be justified by Christ, and so therefore we don't keep the law anymore as an obligation, is Christ, therefore, he says, a minister of sin? In other words, if we don't have to follow the law and its demands anymore, is Christ encouraging us to be lawbreakers, he says? Is, is that what this means? And Paul says emphatically, certainly not. God forbid. The law was good. The problem is that we are bad. But he says, verse 18, for if I build again those things which I destroyed, that is his relationship to the law of God, I make myself a transgressor. So what, what Paul says is, if after we've been set free from the demands of the law, which none of us could keep, and we kept realizing we were lawbreakers, if we at some point in our spiritual life as a Christian go back and we rebuild a life of obligation to the law of God and all the demands and the rituals and the rules, he says, in essence, we're saying to God and saying to others, we've made a great mistake because what Jesus did is not good enough. Paul's going to say at the end of the chapter, if righteousness in some way could be obtained in any other way, he says, then Christ apparently died in vain. It wasn't good enough. And he says, we would be saying it's a great mistake. One commentator said this, the man who tears down a bridge and then rebuilds it admits he made an awful mistake in tearing it down in the first place. Again, returning to legal bondage after receiving the grace of Christ is like a man who's been pardoned returning to prison to serve out the balance of his life sentence. Such an act is stupid and cancels the effect of pardon. The very turning back to the law indicates there is no assurance of salvation in Christ alone. See, what Paul's trying to convey is going back to a religious system of routines and rituals after you found relationship with Jesus is a sure way. Listen, is a sure way to ruin your spiritual life. If you're looking for a way to ruin your spiritual life in Jesus Christ, it starts with an L and it's called legalism. It's going back to a rule-based mentality because legalism never helps the spiritual life. And again, what is legalism? We've said before, legalism is observing some set of requirements and restrictions, things you're required to do to be spiritual, and restrictions, things you can't do if you want to be spiritual, and believing that as you adhere to those obligations, or codes, or whatever you set up, that you're enhancing your spiritual standing, that somehow now you're more acceptable to God, you're more holy or more spiritual because you don't do these certain things that other people do, or you're more holy or righteous because you do all these things that these other Christians or people don't do, And actually, too, believing that somehow God is going to bless you more and you deserve God's blessing because you keep this particular code. That's legalism. 
that, that's a distraction from grace. The only reason we are blessed in any way is the grace of God. We don't deserve anything but hell. The fact that Jesus did what he did puts us in a place of favor. And the reason that we're blessed or favored in any way is because of the grace of Christ. And we don't want to interfere with our relationship with God. Look, be careful of that. Let the spirit of God, if you really want something to govern your heart, don't let it be rules. Let the spirit of God govern your heart, govern your decisions, govern what you do and don't do. That's why Paul says in the end there, verse 19, for I, through the law, died to the law. In other words, Paul's saying, I died to an old way in my spiritual life where I lived in subjection to the law. He says, because when I did that, I realized those who follow the law deserve to die when they break the law. So Paul said, I just let the law kill me once for all. <laughs> I just died to the law. Why, he says, verse 19, so that he might have a different relationship so that I might live to God. Paul says, I put an end to one way of spiritual living so I could pursue a new way of spiritual life, and that is so that I might live to God instead, or you might say live for God. Look, folks, that is honestly the right way to relate to God. Do you want to be right with God? It's really not complicated. Live for God through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. A lot of times we search for purpose and meaning. and We're trying to figure out our existence. Let me help you this morning. Here's the purpose and meaning for your existence. Live for God. Live for God. God doesn't want you to be a religious person. If you don't know him yet this morning in a personal way, he wants you to live for him, have a relationship with him. That comes through Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians this morning, listen, this next week, don't complicate spiritual life. Live for God. Just live for God in everything you do, and that's walking in the Spirit. Living for God, relationally enjoying his love and his work in your life as a partner helping you in the process.